Hey, my name is Cheryl Witten, and this is the Aromatherapist Podcast. One of the biggest problems in aromatherapy is conflicting information and crazy wild claims. All you have to do is search essential oils on the internet, and you'll see what I'm talking about. So when you're looking for information, how do you know who to trust, and how do you know what's right? Well, that's the reason I created this podcast, and a course called Science of Aromatherapy. The Science of Aromatherapy course takes you through aromatherapy as a healing art and the history and modern use of essential oils. You'll learn the basics of aromatherapy, the science and chemistry of essential oils, contraindications and safety considerations, and clinical and personal applications. In this course, I take you through everything from how aromatherapy affects epilepsy and bleeding disorders to drug interactions, allergies and sensitivities, and to use in pregnancy and breastfeeding, and even with children. We covered the main modes of application and profiles of the 10 most popular essential oils. By the end of the course, you'll understand the most common contraindications and safety guidelines, how to use essential oils, how to build a protocol, and how to choose, cross-reference, and eliminate essential oils, as well as how to formulate, blend, and dilute essential oils, and so much more. So why should you learn from me? Well, I'm a clinical aromatherapist and I've been working with essential oils for around 20 years. I've trained with some of the world's renowned botanists and aromatherapy experts, and I teach people all over the world about aromatherapy. I also happen to be a professional health writer and have published peer-reviewed research work in aromatherapy. It's no longer necessary to be confused about aromatherapy. Let me guide you to clarity. Visit livelovelemon.com forward slash science dash course to enroll. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, I'm going to do a deep dive on SIBO, which is a condition, gut condition that affects quite a few people. I did an episode on SIBO earlier in the year and mentioned that I wanted to do a deeper dive and deeper look at it because it's not very well understood and it's actually kind of a complex condition. So I've had SIBO myself, but I have a type called recurrent SIBO, which means it comes back. It's a real pain in the ass to treat and live with super annoying. It affects every part of your life because, well, food is life. So every time you eat, you have a problem. So it's it's a huge pain in the ass. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you also know I have Hashimoto thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune thyroid disease. And that disease has caused another disease, hypothyroidism, which is underactive thyroid. So as you'll learn in this episode, it's actually quite common to have SIBO along with Hashimoto thyroiditis and hypothyroidism and or, and among quite a few other diseases. So SIBO is slowly becoming recognized and understood as a disease. And in fact, we're learning that maybe some people who have irritable bowel syndrome, which is considered a functional GI disorder, and when they call things, you know, a syndrome, it means that they don't really know what's causing it. So people who have IBS actually might have SIBO. So for clarification, IBS is not inflammatory bowel disease, which are autoimmune diseases like Crohn's or colitis, but SIBO is linked with these diseases too. The natural or functional medicine world likes to kind of target your allopathic GP and say that they're kind of blind to SIBO, don't understand this condition, blah, blah, blah. But I say, well, that might be your experience and it kind of is generally not that well understood 
In my experience, in my personal case, that was not the case. If there's one thing allopathic medicine has mastered, it's germ theory, and they understand bacteria overgrowth. There are some debates about testing, which we'll get into, you know, and what's valid and what constitutes a diagnosis. But in my experience, once I had testing, I had absolutely no trouble getting antibiotics and getting treatment for the disease. That being said, at the same time, as I said, there are a lot of health coaches, nutritional practitioners, GPs, perhaps that don't have a good grasp of SIBO either. And I've actually spoken to other individuals who live with SIBO who actually have been the ones to educate the physician on the condition because they they haven't treated a lot of people with it. What also happens is it's very quickly classified as or diagnosed as IBS, which is really frustrating because IBS is literally SIBO for some people. And that actually happened to me with a medical student who was then quickly re-educated by my, my doctor, who is a senior clinician, that SIBO is real, here's how you handle it. And so how it's normally ha- handled is with antibiotics. And speaking of that, we're going to get talk a lot about that today too. We kind of like to throw antibiotics at everything related to bacteria. And in the case of SIBO, that can be curative. And while that can really work for some people and can completely resolve SIBO, we know that there has to be some kind of stewardship with antibiotics too. So other approaches are also important. And one thing that's really missing in allopathic medicine is that they're really, really great at killing the bacteria. Here's some antibiotics, take that, fix that. We got that taken care of, but they are terrible at repairing any damage that that bacteria has then done to the gut. And that's where botanicals and herbal medicine really comes into play and can really shine and help you get your gut back into proper shape. So today, let's go over what SIBO is, why it happens, the symptoms, testing, treatments available, why probiotics as an initial treatment are a terrible idea, in my opinion, how to manage it with food, and of course, botanical solutions. Okay, so what even is SIBO? SIBO stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. It's not considered an infection because it's usually an overgrowth of friendly bacteria. And these are called your commensal bacteria, which are your own bacteria that live in your gut and they're not pathogenic. They don't make you sick. SIBO is when you have an overgrowth of these bacteria, but you're not necessarily sick, as in You generally don't get a fever or have vomiting as you do in the case of food poisoning where you ingest a pathogenic bacteria that causes inflammation and infection in your system and you have a fever, etc. Normally, these bacteria, your commensal bacteria, colonize part of your large intestine and they are there to help break down food and waste, help you synthesize vitamins like B12 and vitamin K, We've known for a really long time that we we don't get B12 from any plants. We only get it from animal products, but also that it has to be made in our gut by bacteria. So this microbiome, which also includes fungi and, you know, other kinds of species in your gut, all works together to help with proper human health, good human health. And the microbiome also signals the immune system. It might affect your weight. It might affect your... Blood sugar management can also affect your brain, heart health. And so we live alongside bacteria strains and species as allies. 
SIBO happens when you get too much bacteria in the wrong part of your gut. In this case, the small intestine. It doesn't happen by accident. And that's really important to say because theories used to say that these bacteria just kind of move up into your large intestine kind of randomly. But that's really not the case since you have valves in your gut that stop that backward flow. So if they were to move up randomly, that's not the case. There would have to be something wrong with a valve. Instead, there's actually quite a number of things that can cause SIBO. Your body naturally has a lot of functions that help keep bacteria that are entering your system or that are already in your system in check from hydrochloric acid in your stomach that kills the majority of microbes that come in with your food to the migrating motor complex or the MMC, which is electromechanical activity that stimulates your gut between meals, helps sweep out any residual material, peristalsis, which is like wave-like movements in the gut that move material through your intestines, bile and pancreatic enzymes that kind of help break down food and some of them are, are antibacterial. If all of these things are working well, bacteria stay in check and the gut does what it does and it moves things along nicely. If these aren't working well or you have diseases that cause damage in the gut or to these specific functions or you get sick from a bacterial infection, you can end up with SIBO. So let's look at low stomach acid. Your stomach secretes acids and juices that help break down food. And this is one of the first stages of digestion. So your stomach bathes your food in a soup of acids and gastric juices, and then physically churns the food like a drum so that it mechanically starts to break down the food. This process partially digests it and makes it easier to break it down as it moves through the other areas of your intestines. So this process of beating and dissolving it produces a semi-fluid mix called chyme, which then gets passed into your small intestine for further di digestion. So if you have low stomach acid, A, that food doesn't get broken down properly and large carbohydrates are actually passed into your intestines. Now bacteria feed on sugar and carbohydrates, which break down into sugar molecules. So this is like a party for them. There's all this extra carbohydrates to feed on, this allows them to multiply. And B, this can also allow ba pathogenic bacteria into your system and wreak havoc. So stomach acid, part of why you have that there is to kill stuff that's coming in. You know, or, or it's sort of like bleach on everything. It's there to, to take care of microbes that might be coming into your system. So why do you get low stomach acid? Well, this can happen from taking proton pump inhibitors or over-the-counter antacids. It can happen from an H. pylori infection that causes gastric ulcers. Some diseases like Hashimoto's, underactive thyroid or hyperthyroidism, also cause low stomach acid. So there's lots of different reasons why you can have not enough stomach acid. The next thing is the migrating motor complex. So this function contracts your gut and sweeps bacteria and residue through your system out of your small intestine into your large intestine. So it's kind of like a housekeeping function and it can be overridden by the digestive function. So once you eat food, this will shut off and you'll move into peristalsis function, which are wave-like movements in the intestines that move food through your gut. 
So the key to the MMC is that it happens between meals. So when you're not eating and the digestive process, like you've pretty much digested all the food that you've had, that you've eaten, then it goes, this kicks in and make sure just to kind of clean up your system. So if this function is impaired, that housekeeping doesn't happen. So then bacteria can kind of get stagnant there and overgrow in the wrong area. And there's actually quite a few things that can cause migrating motor complex problems. So we can see things like if you take medications like opioids or proton pump inhibitors, that can affect the migrating motor complex. Hypothyroidism, when your thyroid doesn't, doesn't produce enough hormones, metabolism and gut function slow down and this will affect the MMC. So your thyroid literally affects every single tissue in your body. Every single system in your body is affected by the thyroid hormones. And so underactive thyroid causes slow, cold, sluggish systems. Celiac disease, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, these things are autoimmune diseases that are damaging your gut. And so these things can affect your migrating motor complex. One other big one also is gastroenteritis, which is an infection that causes gut inflammation. So these bacteria are pathogenic and they overwhelm your system. They really make you sick. You you get vomiting, diarrhea, the chills, sweating. And and these bacteria, when they uh, reach your systems, they release toxins and your, your body will automatically kick in your immune system and you will make antibodies to these toxins. But sometimes those antibodies also target naturally existing proteins in your gut that look like these toxins, but they're responsible for nerve signals. So what can happen then is your immune system starts to, to mistake those and actually starts attacking your own body. And this shuts down your migrating motor complex and causes autoimmune SIBO. So SIBO can be an autoimmune disease. Other diseases that cause nerve or muscle problems can also interfere with intestinal movement, which then causes problems with gut motility. So things like Parkinson's, gastroparesis, strictures or masses in the gut, like tumors in the gut. If you've had surgery that causes scarring, those can affect the muscles, which then can affect how your gut moves. Neurological diseases can affect nerve signaling, which then can affect how your gut moves. So those things can also lead to SIBO. And we talked briefly about pancreatic enzymes. So your pancreas makes enzymes that work with your bile from your liver to break down food. And some of those enzymes are antibacterial. So if you don't have enough bile, you don't have enough enzymes, then you have trouble back, uh, breaking down foods, digesting foods, which allows bacteria to proliferate. And without antibacterial enzymes, then bacteria have a chance to grow. At the same time, the excess bacteria can also break down bile salts and then cause problems with digestion. So when it's sort of like a chicken egg situation there. The too, too much bacteria can cause problems with your bile and not properly breaking down food and then vice versa, not enough bile, bile can also lead to allowing bacteria to grow. Okay, so how do you know if you have SIBO? What are the symptoms? Well, one of the keys is that bacteria feed on sugar, which of course that can come from sugary foods, but mostly it comes from the carbohydrates in your diet, which you know is fruits and vegetables also. These are carbohydrates. 
As the bacteria feed, they release gas, typically hydrogen, carbon dioxide, and methane. This gas is literally the gas that you pass, but if you have an overgrowth, the bacteria, they're producing a lot of gas. You are going to have a lot of gas that you are passing. Also, however, this gas puts pressure in your gut and that can cause gut distension or bloating. The gas also causes pain for some people too. So the dominant type of gas can also cause different symptoms. With a lot of hydrogen gas, you're likely going to have diarrhea. And with a lot of methane gas, you're likely going to have constipation. In some cases, you might alternate from hydrogen to methane, switch from constipation to diarrhea. Most cases of SIBO, the bloating that happens right away after eating, or it's kind of significantly by the end of the day. This looks like that food baby you get after eating. And it's not just a little, in most cases, not just a little bit of bloating. It's quite extreme. And in my case, I mean, I would eat, let's say, a plate of veggies with hummus, and I would look like I was six months pregnant within, you know, half an hour. And it was very uncomfortable. And by night, you literally feel like a basketball is hanging out in your gut. And it's just the worst and you have gas, and then on top of that, you have constipation. So it just is the worst. By morning, you wake up and your stomach is back to normal. That's a really common SIBO cycle. And you kind of feel like, geez, I'm, I, I, I must be losing it because I swear I was massive yesterday. And <laughs> you start to take pictures. As soon as you eat something, it comes back. Some foods make it worse. And for me, there was things like garlic and onions and apples and grains and dairy that all and that all has to do with carbohydrates because it breaks down into sugars that your bacteria love they have a party so what can happen you can actually have some complications from all this bacteria in the wrong spot so what happens is your gut is lined with mucosa and tight junctions that sort of open and close for lack of a better term to kind of let compounds through from your gut into your bloodstream. So this is, you know, your vitamins and things. Your gut breaks down the stuff, releases these, these compounds to make them available for your body, sends them to your liver for metabolism, and then your liver kind of sends it out wherever you need it. When bacteria colonize, they make these biofilms and it's like a sticky matrix that they all hang out in. And they kind of stick to everything. And so that, if you have too much of that happening, that actually damages your mucosa. And they also produce toxins. And those can damage your gut also and lead to what's called intestinal hyper, hyperpermeability, which is basically what you hear commonly called leaky gut. And so when that mucosa is damaged, the lining gets loose the lining is somewhat loose as it is, but it gets too loose. And there are compounds that leak out into your bloodstream that aren't supposed to do that. They're not supposed to be able to get anywhere. And because that mucosa is damaged, they can. So what can happen is you can create sort of almost like a hypersensitivity immune reaction. And this is what we think is linked to some autoimmune diseases. So again, it's kind of like a chicken or egg situation. What comes first in these diseases like mine, thyroid disease, does the thyroid slow down digestion, cause SIBO, and then leak out compounds that cause autoimmune disease? Or do you get SIBO first, which leaks out compounds, and then you develop 
autoimmune disease, which then aggravates the SIBO in a circle. We don't really know yet. We don't really have the answers. But SIBO definitely causes gut damage. Gut damage definitely leads to intestinal hyperpermeability. Leaky gut is linked to autoimmune disease. The other thing that can happen with SIBO too is malnutrition. And the bacteria can interfere with the absorption of nutrients and vitamins and lead to sudden or unintentional weight loss, but also really severe vitamin and nutrient deficiencies. So some people might develop problems with fat and carb absorption, deficiencies in B12, vitamin K, which are synthesized by the bacteria in your gut, as well as deficiencies in fat-soluble vitamins like vitamin A, D, and E. In my personal case, the Hashimoto's is a beast of its own. It causes inflammation in the thyroid and leads to vitamin depletion big time and causes symptoms. And so you can take meds for that, but unless you replenish the missing vitamins that that inflammation depletes, I mean, you, the, the fatigue, the symptoms are not resolved. The meds don't resolve the symptoms. But on top of that, the SIBO also, so I've had that, I have that going on and I've kind of got that figured out. I know which ones I need to take. I know which ones, if I stop taking them within, you know, three days, I can't get out of bed. On top of that, SIBO also caused vitamin depletion. And I actually started having clear teeth. So I'm not absorbing calcium, magnesium, things that you need, vitamin D that you need for your bones, right? So my teeth started going clear and I started having problems with my nerves and my muscles. So thyroid vitamin depletion is a chronic thing and something I'm going to have to deal with probably for the rest of my life. But depletion caused by SIBO can be corrected once you treat that bacteria and repair the gut or address the underlying cause that's leading to the the bacteria overgrowth. Which again, if you have autoimmune SIBO, then we're into a more complex issue, right? So, but generally speaking, If you can get that bacteria addressed, you can treat the underlying cause of why you have that issue. If you get that, the bacteria out of there, generally you can fix your gut. Your gut will start working properly again, and then you will, you can uh, fix the depletion problem. So how do you find out if you have SIBO? Well, testing for this condition is kind of wrapped in a bit of debate. The gold standard for SIBO testing is small intestine aspirate, where they basically stick an endoscope down your throat, and then collect a fluid sample from your small intestine and then test that sample for bacteria growth. And they can figure out exactly what species is overgrowing. But breath testing is another option. And this is much less time consuming, cheaper to do, and it's less invasive. You fast before the test and then you do a baseline measurement where you breathe into a tube, which collects the gas uh, in your breath. Then you drink a glucose drink sometime later, and then you breathe into a tube every 20 minutes or so for about three hours. Some tests use lactulose drinks, but these are considered less accurate than glucose. So glucose tests are better because they're more sensitive and more specific. So then you send all these samples to the lab. The lab uses gas chromatography to test for levels of hydrogen and methane in your breath. So generally speaking, compared to the aspirate test, uh, it's less specific. So some of the catches to the testing is that your gas levels normally rise somewhat as your as the food moves into your large intestine. 
And so some doctors will say, well, this is a useless test because this normally happens or because it's also less specific. Uh, it doesn't very specifically show that that is the small intestine. And some detractors of the test will say that, okay, well, it could be measuring different metabolism at different times. So what's important when these tests, these tests are being done is that we're looking for the gas levels at a specific time window, usually within 80 to 90 minutes after you take the drink. So for my case, I mean, I'm bloating within 30 minutes of eating. So we know that it's likely in my small intestine. After 90 minutes, you know, you're starting to move into the large intestine. And so now we can't really count those levels. We want to really look at the levels in the first part of the test. All right, so treatment. Now, what do we do for SIBO? We know we have SIBO. We have symptoms of SIBO. We get tested. We know we have it. What do we do? Some of the issues with SIBO is that people have digestion problems like constipation or diarrhea, gas and bloating, and we're sort of taught that these are all normal things. So people read somewhere, read online that or in a magazine that they should ramp up their gut health and they should do this by taking probiotics, eating fiber, eating fermented foods. And what happens if you actually have SIBO, you try these, these techniques, you take a probiotic, you start eating fiber to help with constipation, you eat fermented foods and your symptoms, usually most cases of SIBO, your symptoms get worse. And like fiber supplements are the worst. Fiber supplements are the worst. Fiber is carbohydrates and it works for constipation because some types of fiber don't break down in your gut. And so other types create sort of like a gel-like solution in your gut. And this helps draw water into your stool, makes it softer and easier to pass. And fibrous carbohydrates that are found in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, but you can get some like inulin or uh, psyllium husk that gel up and that are, are undigestible. And so basically that don't break down and they basically pass through your system without being digested and pull in that water. But bacteria just feast on. And if you've tried and taking a fiber supplement, you might find will absolutely make your symptoms worse. People often take probiotics and one of the treatments you actually hear for SIBO a lot of the time is to take a probiotic. And a probiotic is friendly bacteria that your gut normally has that you add in to sort of fix an imbalance or recolonize. But here's the problem. Unless you know exactly what species is missing, you are just throwing more friendly bacteria at an already too large population. This will make your symptoms worse, I guarantee you. The theory is that giving your body the missing species will cause that lower species, the imbalanced species, to grow and then crowd out the other species. And in theory, that sounds really good, you know, but in real life, as a patient with SIBO, I can tell you this doesn't work well. Unless you have had an aspirate test and you know exactly what species is imbalanced there or, or what species is overgrowing and you can find a product that doesn't have that species, just throwing an over-the-counter product at it is going to just explode an already overgrown colony. Like this makes no sense to me. In my opinion, I don't feel that probiotics are a solution to SIBO, especially as an initial treatment. Unless you know exactly the species 
that are in your gut. Some people then try to eat fermented foods for better ecology too. And honestly, for a healthy person, I actually think that fermented foods are the best way to manage a good ecology and to keep your, your, your flora healthy. I actually don't think that taking a daily probiotic supplement is a good idea. I actually rather believe that feeding fermented foods to the bacteria you already have is a much better and healthier strategy. But if you have SIBO, Eating fermented foods like natto or kraut or yogurt is usually also a disaster. Again, it's a party for the bacteria. You are feeding a bacteria colony exactly what they need to grow. So you're going to have worse symptoms. The exception to this for me and for a lot of people I've talked to is kimchi. And I think the reason for this is because kimchi often has ginger in it and ginger is a carminative helps relieve gas, it helps with motility, which means that it helps naturally move your gut, helps stimulate that natural movement of your gut so that can help move things along and move bacteria along. So that's likely why it's more manageable. However, you're still feeding the bacteria. So if you haven't treated it yet, I don't love to see kimchi being being used until we get the bacteria under control. Which then leads me to this point, what does work? If those things don't work as treatment, what does work? Well, this is a bacteria problem, so antibiotics work. And in a lot of cases, this can actually be curative. It can actually completely solve your problem. You just wipe out the bacteria and you can move on. So it can help. So make sure you go talk to your doctor about that. Here's the thing though. In other cases, it doesn't do the trick. If you have autoimmune SIBO or you have other diseases that are linked to SIBO, it's going to be more complex. One thing that isn't discussed a lot is that most of these friendly bacteria that are in in your gut are already generally antibiotic resistant, especially if you had antibiotics as a child. So when you have an overgrowth of resistant bacteria, it can get really hard to treat. So for some people like myself, maybe you can treat the bacteria with antibiotics, you get rid of some of the bacteria, but not all of it, or it doesn't do anything and they grow back again, this time stronger. And so the other thing is that sometimes antibiotics actually also just make the condition worse. They can cause diarrhea and other symptoms that then you stop taking the antibiotics because it's just, you already have diarrhea and it makes it worse. It can just be a mess and antibiotics don't always fix this problem. So what about herbal and botanical solutions then? What if you've tried antibiotics, it doesn't work, what else can you do? And also, what do we do once the doctor is done with you after you finish the round of antibiotics? Remember I said those bacteria damage the mucosa and your gut lining is damaged. So we actually need to repair that. And you're, most likely your doctor is not going to do that. The allopathic medicine most likely doesn't look at those, those concerns. A lot of the time it's sort of like, oh, it'll fix itself. I like to approach this in three steps. So step one, kill the bacteria. Step two, heal the lining. Step three, restore your ecology or flora. So step one is the bacteria treatment. So again, as I said, that can be done with an antibiotic, be a lot faster than botanical solutions, you know, but we can come up against resistant strains that don't respond to antibiotics. We can have uh, it come back, which means it may not respond to that bacteria again or that antibiotic again. So we can run into some issues. So what do we do? 
we can look at some antibacterial bot botanicals. And my favorite is oregano. Here's the thing about oregano. We got to get it into that small intestine. That means we have to get it past the stomach acid. So it needs to be delayed release and needs to be emulsified oregano oil, not just straight oregano oil. And this is a critical point. We've got to get past that, that stomach acid. So we want it to be able to and get down into the intestine and then release where we need that oregano to be able to kill bacteria. If you take just straight oregano oil also, you're going to, and I've talked to people who've done this, they've downed a lot of oregano oil. If you know anything about oregano, it is, uh, it's full of phenols. So phenols mean fire, burning, irritation. You can damage your esophagus and the mucosa that lines your esophagus and all of your intestines. So you can have worse digestive symptoms. So if you're already in agony, we don't want to make it worse. You're going to stop using it if it's worse. So we really want to be specific about the type of product we're using. At the same time, we're killing off a lot of bacteria. So we want to support that detoxification pathway, particularly the liver. Your, so your systems are like thyroid disease, whatever's happening, your systems are slow. You're not removing things very well, especially through the gut. So I like to see the liver uh, being supported. It's part of your digestive system, part of your digestive process. So we want to see things like milk thistle or other herbs that can help stimulate liver function just to make sure that your detoxification pathways are your other pathways because your digestive system, your gut is not working properly. We want to make sure the other pathways are open and moving well. So when you do a bot botanical, uh, antibacterial botanical, this step can take a while. Uh, like you're looking at months, likely. And during this time, I actually like to see normal foods, eating normal foods without changing anything in your diet, even though the foods will bother you. You'll read online that you should immediately change your diet to starve the bacteria. But this is not really what we want to do when we're treating the bacteria because bacteria feed on your food. And if we don't give them the foods that they thrive on, then they're sort of hiding. At, we're starving them essentially. And we want to keep them active so that nobody's hiding and we're able to just kill them all, get them all out of there. So we don't want to be shooting in the dark here. We want to keep them active so we can just blast them. And then once we get past this step, then we can move into healing the gut. And this is step two. This is when I think that you start to change your diet. And the one that worked the best for me is low FODMAP diet. FODMAP stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. So these are short chain carbohydrates or sugars that bacteria just dream of and they're in the foods that you eat. And so by eliminating these types of foods that are high in these types of compounds, then we can make sure that we are starving the bacteria, making sure that once we've got through killing it, then we don't go back to feeding anything that might be left over. If you've read somewhere online that this is a bad diet and you should avoid it, especially on social media, I see this everywhere, please ignore that advice. Low FODMAP is not for losing weight. This program was designed by scientists and a GI doc, I believe, for treating digestive disease. So it's not about losing weight. This is about treating disease. So if you don't have SIBO, don't eat low FODMAP. That's weird. 
low FODMAP is for treating digestive disease. So then this is when it's appropriate to use it. Because once the bacteria are gone, we really want to starve the colony. We really want to keep out any foods that might help anything proliferate again. And while we do this, we want to heal the mucosa. And this is where herbal medicine shines for SIBO. So one thing that we do is use L-glutamine. And this is a fuel source for the cells that line your gut. So without glutamine, these cells starve and waste away. Glutamine also helps maintain the villi in your intestines, which actually stop bacteria from moving back into your small intestine. So we want to get those nice and strong. It also helps prevent intestinal permeability. So that helps get the lining tightened up and healed up. And it also helps with inflammation. I also like to see some omegas to tone down that inflammation cascade. And I like to see some demulchin herbs. These are herbs that have mucilage, like slippery elm bark, marshmallow. These help heal the mucosa. And these mucilaginous herbs are key to the mucosa because they soothe and protect the lining. They soothe irritated membranes and tissues in the body. The thing is, this mucilage is is a carbohydrate. So we have to be super careful here. We can't overdo it. Uh, We gotta be careful about the supplements we use. We have to go slowly at the same time. So some people might have problems with these herbs And in some cases, it might be better to use like ginger to help with motility and stimulate proper movement in the gut and get that functioning and L-glutamine to help with the mucosa and just avoid the herbs. It just kind of depends on on what's happening for you. And this step will take weeks again. And it just kind of depends on the severity and depends on why you have SIBO. And then once we get through that, we move on to the final step, which is to reintroduce food and restore your ecology. So low FODMAP diet is not meant to be a long-term thing. Once we get through the healing phase, then we start to slowly reintroduce foods and watch the symptoms. So there might be some foods that just aggravate your guts. It might be dairy, it might be onions, it might be apples, for example. But we slowly start to bring food back in and see how we do. If something causes symptoms, then we take it back out, wait for some time, and then try again. And if it's still a problem, then maybe we don't eat that. And then while we do this, we restore the gut ecology with spore-based probiotics. This is when probiotics should be used. But not just the ones off the shelf. It's very specific ones. This step can be frightening for some people after like this process is long. It can take months and months and months. Okay. And a lot of people fear this step because you just really work hard to get the dang bacteria out of here. Your gut's starting to feel good. You're finally having proper bowel movements. But you need a healthy biome in order for the gut to function properly. So if we've just killed everything, that's also not good either. And it's going to cause digestive and nutrition problems. So it is critical that we have a healthy biome. So this step is about building a new colony with a safe, you know, quote unquote, safe, friendly bacteria, usually using a spore-based product. And then through this whole process, we also have to focus on fixing vitamin deficiencies with good quality vitamins. So in some cases, people might have really severe deficiencies. Uh, And so you might need to go see your GP, your naturopathic doctor, and get some B12 injections. You make sure you're going to someone who can do that properly for you. But throughout the whole process, even at the beginning, we want to get some of those vitamins back into your body so that 
and make them bioavailable so that we can start to see some, some proper nutrition, nutritional status there. And in some cases, the SIBO process is just complex. If you have strictures or masses in your gut or you had a gut surgery and now you have scarring or you have autoimmune SIBO after food poisoning or you have a neurological disease, you might need different treatments. These can be things like surgery. You might need to have masses taken care of or you might need to take other kinds of medications. You know, you need to address whatever the underlying cause is. You're also still going to need to address overgrowth. You're going to need to heal the gut lining because too much bacteria causes damage. And so you can still take these steps to correct some of the effects of the condition even while you're treating the underlying cause. So SIBO is most definitely not as simple as take a probiotic or eat more fiber. If you've tried those steps and things are worse, you need to see a doctor. Ultimately, the herbal ethos is that all health begins in the gut. So getting and keeping your digestive system in the best state is absolutely critical to well-being. All right, beautiful people. Thank you so much for listening today. If you feel so inclined, please subscribe, rate, and review this show. For show notes and more information on essential oils, please visit livelovelemon.com forward slash podcast. And we love to know what you're up to and how you're using your essential oils. So head over to Instagram and find us at the Aromatherapist Podcast. My name is Cheryl Witten, and I am your aromatherapist. We have to share with you this obligatory disclaimer. Information in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It is not a replacement for medical advice or for professional aromatherapy consultation. If you need medical care, please visit your physician. Speak to your primary care provider, pharmacist, and a qualified aromatherapist before commencing any programs.